0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witz University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good afternoon to uh, Dan Large, who joins us from Budapest, Hungary, who's an assistant professor at the School of Public Policy at the Central European University, and he's also an associate at SIA. Uh, but Dan, is, you know, his titles aside, uh, he is more or less what we, uh, what we both Copus and I consider to be the world's most preeminent expert on China, Sudan, South Sudan relations. Uh, most of our conversations that we've had with various experts, Dan's name has come up in the conversation somewhere. So it's nice to put, well, at least in this case, a voice with a name. Uh, Dan, uh, a very warm afternoon. Welcome to you.
1: Thank you, and good afternoon to you.
0: We are thrilled to have you on the show today, in part because we're coming back to the topic of South Sudan. Now, I know we've been talking a lot about South Sudan the past few months, and that's in part because... It is the the hot story right now, uh, and what's happening there over the past, uh, I'd say, two to three months. There's been an intensity of firing uh, of uh, of conflict there. Let me bring you up to speed before we get into the conversation with Dan. There was a ceasefire on January 23rd between the rival parties. Now we're not talking Sudan, South Sudan. This is fighting that's within Sudan only. When the Vice President Rick Machar and the President Salva Kiir decided that they were going to go after each other after they had fought endlessly with, uh, uh, with, with Sudan, with Khartoum. So now what's, en- what's happening is the oil fields in Malakal in the past week in the northern part of South Sudan have, uh, have come under conflict and the fighting has resumed. China received a lot of credit for its participation in the January 23rd peace talks that led to a ceasefire, and now that seems to be coming undone. And so today with Dan what we want to do is kind of understand where are we today, let's look forward here, And the Los Angeles Times had a great headline that I thought was very interesting and caught our attention. It said, even China has second thoughts on South Sudan after violence. And Dan, the implication there is that China has a stomach for this type of instability and high risk investments that many other countries don't have. But it appears that maybe, just maybe, Sudan might have crossed some kind of threshold that Beijing might be kind of getting to the point where even it might say, you know what, It's time for us to go. So how would you describe the Chinese thinking today on the conflict that is simmering, if not boiling, in South Sudan?
1: Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be on the show, and thanks for the invitation. Uh, Second, I wouldn't dream of uh, speaking for the Chinese government, but I'd be happy to offer a few thoughts here. Um, It would help, I think, to start with some perspective. Uh, The remarks of the Chinese ambassador in Juba I think we're a welcome reality check uh, pointing to the thicker, more complicated nature of China's relations with South Sudan, uh, and of course, China's relations with Sudan indirectly as well. Part of that reality check, I think, should involve a reappraisal of the idea that China somehow walks unaffected on the waters of African conflict uh, and is, not, um, is somehow uniquely immune uh, to the various. Uh, problems that they, they can cause. Uh, I think it's been quite clear for a few years now that this is not the case, um, that we're not talking about a unique engagement that's somehow immune to conflict pressures, but quite the opposite, that China is as exposed to conflict and other risks as other actors as well. And in that respect, its engagement is quite similar uh, to those of other actors, which in Sur- South Sudan include companies from Malaysia, India, and of course, so, I think this is a good way to perhaps start a new conversation which gets a better grip upon the current and recent nature of actual South Sudan-China relations as opposed to imagined South Sudan-China relations.
0: So, let me just quickly, you know, when you said the comments of the ambassador, Ambassador Ma Tiang, uh, you know, the reality check that you mentioned was, and if this is, we're talking about the same thing here, he said, quote, unfortunately, everything has changed. So everything is on hold. Is that what you're the reality check that you're
1: talking about? Yes, I think so broadly. Um, but I would say also that in many ways, if we rewind to the nature of China's south sudan relations before 15th of December 2013, there were already problems in bilateral relations which spoke of a recalibration of China's role in Sudan and South Sudan and really speaks to the need. Instead of having a black and white binary conversation about the advance or the retreat of China's role there. Uh, it speaks to the need to have a much more differentiated conversation about nuance, about complexity, and above all about the politics of, of these actual relations.
2: Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about what the, the th- in, in broad strokes, what the politics of these relations actually are at the moment?
1: Yes, absolutely. I think it would help to begin, um, of course, with remembering the formative period of China-South-Sudan relations in the modern sense, uh, which was the crucible of war in the late 1990s, uh, a time of vicious South-South civil war at the same time as North-South civil war, which did produce a lasting legacy of strong associations between China and the government in Khartoum in most parts of southern uh, Sudan. Um, That was a continuing sort of passed in the present dynamic after the peace agreement of 2005 and even after South Sudan's independence in July 2011. Um, After that, in terms of the story of China and independent South Sudan relations, there are a few themes, I think, to touch upon uh, that get uh, to the actual nature of relations in in a better sense. Um, There were, firstly, uh, strong efforts by the Chinese government to enhance its standing in South Sudan and contribute to the new independent country's development prospects. This took the form of its own bilateral assistance program, various forms of humanitarian and development assistance, uh, for example. Um, And, of course, China's role in peacekeeping and and multilateral efforts has already been mentioned. Um, Secondly, there was a process of getting to know each other on the behalf of both governments. Remember, China's consulate had been established only in September 2008, officially, which is quite remarkable, uh, as that was just on the eve of South Sudan's independence. It really speaks of the total dominance of Northern Sudan-China relations until that point. So the two governments had been developing their relations, and I would say this was characterized by degree of success, progress, if you will, but above all, mutual discontent. Uh, So everyday relations between the government of South Sudan and the Chinese embassy weren't always smooth on a day-to-day basis uh, for various uh, reasons. Um, And this was partly due to misperceptions or communication problems between both sides. You probably remember the dramatic announcement by the then South Sudanese minister of information in April 2012 that China would provide an eight billion U.S. dollar loan to South Sudan. Uh, This is one example of something which had never, ever been agreed between both parties at all. Um, But when it was announced, it acquired a certain reality and led to great disillusionment in South Sudan that China somehow had the money but wasn't willing to actually uh, provide it. The fact that it took more than a year for the Chinese government to deny this in public uh, hardly helped at all. Uh, of of course, as well. Uh, So there were negative sentiments towards China in South Sudan at a popular level, but also part of everyday government relations. Another aspect of relations which speaks of efforts to bridge these gaps and really forge a proper, closer working relation uh, was China's efforts to address the problems of state capacity in Juba and to balance negotiating capability on both sides if you will, in particular around the most important question in relations, which was finance for a major deal to allow significant Chinese investment in South Sudan. That was what the oil loan story was all about in the first place. But actually, negotiating this was much more complicated and involved, for example, efforts by the Chinese government and even Exim Bank to establish what they were calling China desks uh, in the government of South Sudan in Juba in order to advance uh, negotiations. Um, The final point uh, I would raise here, which I think is often overlooked but is crucial, uh, is the process by which there were political party relations deepening between the Chinese Communist Party and the SPLM. Um, This is important uh, and featured a number of different SPLM delegations visiting China and uh, CPC counterparts visiting uh, South Sudan as well. Uh, what's interesting, perhaps, is that many of these were led by former SBLM Secretary General Pagan Amun, uh, who, of course, has had a rather different political fate since uh, December uh, last year. Um, but that really spoke of the underlying relationships at the political government level, but also at the political party level. And the future relations rested, ultimately, with the negotiations about a substantial Chinese financial package. Um, and it's that which would have unlocked a significant real peace dividend in, in relations. So overall, it, it really speaks of a, a work in progress before the current conflict uh, erupted. Uh, there, w- there was progress. Uh, things were advancing. The prospects, in some senses, were quite good uh, if this loan could have been agreed. Now everything has changed and changed almost totally
0: Now, it strikes me as a little bit of a surprise to hear you say that communication between Juba and Beijing was tense and bad, in part because uh, earlier we spoke with uh, one of your counterparts, uh, Luke Pady, who mentioned the fact that Sudan and the history of, of Sudan in terms of Chinese oil diplomacy it plays a very important role. He said it's really the second to Daqing, which was the great oil discovery in China, and how really there's a, a mythology almost about the role that Sudan plays in China's, not only its Africa policy, but also its, its emergence as an oil power, an overseas oil power. The flip side is, you know, South Sudan, you know, generates, you know, sells, sells 80% of all of its oil to China and, and, and really oils 99% of the, of the entire budget of South Sudan. So it seems like these two are, are mutually interdependent on one another, but yet you kind of bring up the fact that despite that interdependence, they do not get along that
1: well or at least don't have the best communication. Well, yes, there, there was certainly mixed Uh, dynamics underway uh, such that it was hard to generalize the the key word that you've just used I think uh, is Sudan Uh, I'm talking about the government of South Sudan in Juba not the government of Sudan in Khartoum No, but the
0: oil is in South Sudan so I guess, I mean I was referring to South Sudan specifically but uh, and after the split I would assume that, that the Chinese would have extended the jubilation that they had over Sudan into South Sudan in part because the oil is there
1: um, sure. But I, I think it's important to recognize, um, again, this deeper history behind the development of oil. And it's Sudan that has the iconic status in CNPC history and China's overseas investment history in Africa more generally. Uh, South Sudan came relatively late, but with real consequences such that, yes, there may have been this mutual economic interdependence in terms of resource sharing, including oil export infrastructure, of course. But the crucial difference was this political divergence uh, based upon very different wartime histories uh, between uh, North Sudan and South Sudan. So China had always been on the side of the SPLA's enemy, which was Khartoum. Uh, Interestingly, I would argue that the SPLA, SPLM used China very cleverly as part of their efforts to that moved towards the referendum in January 2011 and then, of course, independence. So in some senses they used the closest friend of the National Congress Party in Khartoum uh, as a political asset. But I think it's that thick politicized nexus between the, the politics of this and the economics of this, which was much more consequential in South Sudan. Remember 2012, uh, if we just rewind to remind ourselves of this, this was the year of living very dangerously for South Sudan. Uh, we had ongoing conflict between North Sudan and South Sudan. We had the oil industry shut down almost at the uh, end of guns from South Sudan. Uh, and, of course, we had economic austerity in South Sudan as well. We'd, we'd had all sorts of examples of quite dramatic policy choices, shall we call them, <laughs> from Juba, which spoke of its willingness to sacrifice apparent economic uh, interest in the face of what it seemed to prioritise as its political uh, priority. So, in some senses, the current rupture or recent difficulties and differences between the governments in Juba and Beijing speaks of an older uh, story uh, based upon this history of conflict.
2: Um, uh, you know, kind of to to pick up on that point. Um, you know, for an outsider, it's frequently. Quite difficult. or for me, anyway, it's it's quite difficult to really understand the motives behind the current civil war. Um, obviously, political political control is 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 at stake. But you know, kind of the the story, the Los Angeles Times story that that we've been sending around made the point that you know, kind of there was a, a lot of very big Chinese investment. Um, you know, kind of on the verge of of being implemented or being signed, and also a, a lot of very enthusiastic you know kind of interest from from American companies companies so you know kind of what was you know what what were some of the reasons you know kind of pushing um uh, Salvakir and you know kind of Rick Masha to actually kind of escalate this conflict into civil war and why wasn't there why, why do you think there wasn't more you know kind of more kind of a an attempt to kind of work together or to arrange some some form of of kind of payment or you know kind of a, a, a less a less kind of explicit conflict kind of civil war kind of option
1: that is the million dollar question. Um, and yes, the, the, the change was dramatic and extremely swift. Uh, the IMF in October last year were predicting uh, South Sudan real GDP growth about 43% for 2014. Uh, there were all sorts of plans on the table for scaling up of investments from not just China, but other countries as well. Now remember that in the oil industry, the French company Total uh, still owns a vast block, Block B, uh, which covers most of the uh, area called Jongle, which is, of course, very affected by, by the current fighting. So uh, very few people saw this coming. Uh, some, of course, had, however, recognized that there was a political storm brewing, uh, which uh, involved what turned out to be irreconcilable differences between uh, President Kiir Mayardit and Riek uh, Mashar. And so what really crystallized as a political power struggle uh, erupted into a violent conflict that acquired uh, ethnicized uh, dimensions uh, and continues to to expand, to deepen uh, and take on regional dimensions as well. I should say that the precise uh, circumstances of the actual so-called trigger behind uh, the current conflict have not been properly ascertained. And I doubt that they can be because there are very different competing narratives of just what happened uh, and who did what. So we may be unable to recover that precise history, but uh, clearly a lot happened very quickly, uh, and it's far too late to put any genie back into the bottle, if ever there was one. The bigger point that this illustrates, I think, is the way in which the primacy of South Sudanese politics dominates not just relations with China, but virtually all external actors as well.
2: So, is is the calculation there that that you know kind of that they ha- actually have the time to to kind of settle these political differences, uh, even if it goes to civil war, which it has, um, you know, kind of because there'll always be people, or or external actors standing in line waiting to buy that oil whenever this, which kind of whichever kind of government when when they when they're ready um, to, to sell it, there'll be someone lining up to buy it.
1: That's. Probably part of the longer-term calculation, certainly, and the oil blocks that have been shut down completely in South Sudan, which are those in uh, unity state, uh, clearly they were experiencing declining yields uh, already before the current shutdown, but the oil that is underground now will stay underground and the future can be recovered. Um, So in some senses, the longer economic game uh, still features uh, oil as the centerpiece of, of the South Sudanese economy, but what's really driving this isn't so much... Uh, the oil industry, although that's obviously the key part of government uh, revenue, uh, so much as these political differences and also all sorts of layers of different uh, conflict dynamics uh, across southern Sudan, uh, some very directly related to uh, these differences between uh, Salva Ki and Riek Machar, but others uh, speaking of different conflict dimensions in the south as well. So it's a complicated, tangled mixture of different conflict dimensions, uh, of which the negotiations in Addis Ababa uh, can't be properly expected to address everything uh, at at one particular uh, time. And that's the problem with any uh, talk of the the current fate, the current cessation of hostilities agreement that was mentioned earlier uh, seems to have been fundamentally disrupted by the current fighting around Malakal. Uh, But this is where any peace process in Addis Ababa faces uh, real limits about its application in South Sudan in view of this thick set of mixed conflict dynamics.
0: I want to wrap up the show and wrap up our discussion just in a forward-looking Question in terms of going back to our original premise of the show, which was that LA Times headline that even the Chinese now are getting frustrated with 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 what's going on in South Sudan, and I, I wanted to get your sense of where do you see this relationship going in the in the near term at least, and maybe the medium term? Do the Chinese finally say, you know, we're not going to put our CNPC workers back into South Sudan who've been evacuated? You know, we're there's there's a You know, the part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal that the United States is negotiating with 11 Asian countries is to to help facilitate uh, natural gas and oil exports from the United States, which is now emerging as the world's largest energy exporter. So South Sudanese oil may not actually be that important in the future as we go into an era of abundant supply. And I'm wondering, will the Chinese see that they have more opportunities elsewhere in Africa for less grief than what they're dealing with in South Sudan and 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 really live up to the headline that we saw in the, in the LA Times? Or do you kind of get a sense that, listen, the Chinese have a long-term vision for South Sudan and Sudan? They're in this for the long haul. They'll sit, they'll be patient now, and they'll come back when things calm down.
1: Well, I think there was a long-term vision that China had for South Sudan. And in many ways, it was a very positive welcome vision. Uh, this was a vision of substantial, hard infrastructural development, that would have gone a long way if realised to have redressed historic underdevelopment in southern Sudan, um, built up over many uh, and many decades. Um, so that was all based upon uh, the financial negotiations between uh, the two parties, and if realised, uh, this would have made a huge and, and tremendously beneficial uh, contribution to South Sudan's uh, long postponed development. Now, I think that vision may remain but clearly can't be squared in any way with current conflict realities. That's the sad uh, new development. And so ultimately, I think everything does depend upon what happens to the conflict in South Sudan period uh, in terms of what China does now and how it goes forward. So rather than a retreat, I think this is more a recalibration. This is a necessary repositioning uh, by China in terms of its engagement with South Sudan. Certainly the way it scaled back its oil operations uh, speak partly actually of experience of insecurity uh, in the Sudans before and learning uh, from uh, its um, experience of of various conflicts uh, before. But it also, I think, reflects the realization that very little can be done in terms of China's role beyond oil uh, until there's progress, not just in the political negotiations, uh, but also the actual fighting on the ground uh, as well. The actual importance of oil from South Sudan in China's oil relations with Africa, I think, particularly in recent years, has consistently been overstated. Mm. There's much more behind China's role uh, in South Sudan than simply the oil. Uh, so yes, in many ways, the significant oil story uh, has moved to other parts of Africa and other parts of the world as well, which is why in some senses what we're talking about, I think, is whereas before in Sudan as it was, and the two Sudans as they became, In a sense, the story was economics in command before Darfur came along and politics became more important. Uh, Now the economics remains, and this is a regional story, remember, as well. It's not just uh, South Sudan. But, of course, the difference is that politics is now comprehensively in command. Um, And in many ways, the new story for China and South Sudan is one of diplomacy, of attempted mediation, uh, and whether or not it's new interest in practically uh, applying ideas about relationship between security and development uh, can actually be realized. So, yes, this is a new chapter in Chinese foreign policy, but it's absolutely part of a longer story. It's hard to
0: tell if you're optimistic or pessimistic. I think the one thing that we can confirm is the fact is that the South Sudanese people are going to lose the most in all of this after so much promise of the past few years uh, about the, the potential economic growth that they were just about to embark upon, and now it seems like uh, there's a lot more suffering ahead. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Dan, Dan Large, is an assistant professor of public policy at Central European University. He's also an associate at the South African Institute of International Affairs. One of the things we like to do at the end of every show, Dan, is to kind of let people know if there's anywhere on the web that they can find you, uh, if, you, you know, Twitter, Facebook, you know, so that they can keep on, on top of what you're reading, writing and thinking.
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter at Dan TM Large. I'm also on the website of the School of Public Policy uh, here at Central European University. I might also say uh, that I'm, I can be reached at the Rift Valley Institute's Sudan Open Archive, which is a digital library providing full access to all sorts of information about South Sudan uh, and Sudan. That's available at www.sudanarchive.net.
0: That's, that's awesome. Thank you so much for letting us know about that. And uh, and I recommend to everybody out there that Dan is probably, you know, one of the smartest guys out there on China-Africa studies and in particular about Sudan-China uh, relations along with Luke Pady, uh, who we've had on the show. And uh, and it's just so this is the story right now of at least of the year so far of what's happening. So follow Dan on Twitter and also at the various other places. Kobus, uh, where can people
2: find you on the on the web if they want to follow what you're reading and writing? Um, you'll, see, you'll see my name on our Facebook page which, which is uh, facebook.com slash China Africa Project um, and also I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E Cobus and I are updating that Facebook page uh, almost 18 hours a day
0: from Africa and Asia uh, so we really invite you to partake in the conversations that we're having over there. It's just a fantastic group of people. Uh, mostly, 80% are, are young, under the age of 30. Uh, so it's a really dynamic conversation. Very, very lively. Uh, once again, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And one of the things we're trying to do with all of our academic uh, guests is really kind of encourage them to, uh, to promote this as a teaching tool to get kind of your students involved in China, or at least more interested. So if, you, if you're teaching any classes these days, it's our, our, our way of cheap publicity to get students involved in uh, and more interested in China-Africa relations by checking out our Facebook page.
1: Great. I will certainly
0: continue to recommend it wholeheartedly. That would be great. And uh, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it, of course, is on iTunes. Just look for us under China-Africa Project. And uh, we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening.